keep going into the next section, personal values and convictions. First question here is, describe your view of standards and biblical obedience. Yeah, this is a, this is a really big question that touches basically everything in this section here. So one of the things that, that some people will, will come to us is they'll say, okay, what does Fathers of the Way believe about X, Y, and Z? Oh, I can, I can submit to that, and I can be okay with that, and therefore I can be a member. And in the back of their mind, I think what, what they have is this concept of a, a group has a given list of, of standards is a term that's often used. And if you can envision yourself submitting yourself to those particular standards, then you're, you're, you're part of the club. And there, there's, a lo- there's a lot of issues with that that framework of approaching this. So let me let me first say say this. One of the things that I often say when we do spiritual assessment is I say, my goal in going through this is that if for whatever reason followers of the way blew up or you moved away to some other place, I would want you to be doing the same things as we're advocating for here, irrespective of our existence. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different goal than just understanding what a group believes and saying, oh, I can go along with this. It becomes the goal of persuasion and instilling convictions and having someone in a very heartfelt way believe for and fight for these, these tenets that are, are, you know, we're walking through in this, in this spiritual assessment. There's a lot of ways of saying this, um, and maybe maybe I'll I'll um, I'll offer up just one here that the one of the one of the patterns that we we're dealing with today, and there's there's an elaborate way of saying this, tradition zero one two, but is is this concept of okay, there's there's a lot of churches out there that will again have this more standards view. It's that's a tradition two mindset, and you you can agree to those. You can be a member. The problem is is also with with that view is that okay if you say okay the standard is 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 this okay your your skirt has to be this length and no shorter. It, it actually encourages a, a almost a minimalist view of obedience, like that. Oh, if I just do this. And I'm fine. I've, I've I've met that that standard. I've checked that box. I'm good. As opposed to a view of obedience that comes from the heart, where you're expressing that to the best of your ability, and it's not this notion of of there's this particular line that once you hit it, you're fine. And in general, one of the things that we have seen all throughout history is that tradition to churches tend to, not always, but they tend to to lead to a situation where you have people that have these more token forms of obedience that isn't isn't this this dynamic, convictional, heartfelt, I'm gonna die for this type belief. We don't want that. We don't want that at all. Now there's another extreme, which is a tradition zero uh, would be the technical term for it, where 
you have a kind of the Bible in me type doctrine, whatever I think is right, I'm, I'm kind of the king of my own castle. There's a lot of problems with that view. You see that a lot in, in, in Protestant churches and sometimes in, in Anabaptist churches as well. We're trying to make the case for a third way, which is, we would say, tradition one or something that's much more historically grounded, where we're, we want deep conviction instilled on these, in these matters that comes from that individual's heart. The church is a, is a secondary authority that is incredibly important and we should listen to and we should have a sense of, of respect for and, and deferring to. But nonetheless, these are convictions that have been born between your interactions with the Holy Spirit and Scripture and yourself. And when you have that, then the church actually becomes a place of rest mm. because you have a group of people that are traveling together on this journey that, that have these, these, these deep roots of this is what God himself has ordained for the Christian life, and we are fellow sojourners on this journey together. What would you add to, to this point here? I think the, the, the question of standards is um, uh, where it's derived from for me is that <clears throat> that we're all creatures of language, right? And, and, and our sacred text is in language. And what that means is that we have to, we have, to have some sense of meaning the same thing when we say something. So, so a lot of times in our circles, these questions of standards, they revolve around like some practical issue like modesty. Like the Bible says to be modest. So what, what does it mean to be modest? How do we define that term? And it helps me sometimes to, to recast that whole conversation and say, what, what, if the, what if the apostle had said we're supposed to dress red? Well, how we would forever then, for the last two millennia, be trying to figure out how red is red, or how red, how blue can a red be until it's not red anymore and it's blue, and and that kind of conversation about where's the outer limit, is a is a problem in and of itself. Like, if I have to define the outer limit of where's the line in the sand where it's not red anymore. If that's the way that I'm gravitating about about uh, obedience issues, then I'm already starting off on the wrong foot, mm-hmm. and and it's important that we're trying to get to the heart of what what does God want us to be, and and it's a very different thing to approach biblical obedience from the perspective of what does God want us to be, versus what do I have to do. Those are, and I see both from from different groups of people, from different individuals, is this approach. And obviously, there's going to be still if we, if you and I are both still coming at 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 uh, is this red or not? Is this modest or not? How where where do we draw lines around these these terms? We can both be coming at it from the place of saying, what does God want us to be? and still miss each other in some parameters. But if you're saying, what do I have to do? And I'm saying, what does God want us to be? 
we're going to be we're going to find ourselves worlds apart in the conversation. We're not even going to talk about the issues the same way. And so, so when I start this section and talking about biblical obedience and standards, what I'm I'm trying to diagnose that that persuasion. Where are we come? Where are we approaching the issue of what it means to be God's people? What what is God expecting from us? How does He want us to be? And 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 that includes all these practical things of life. So that's an important beginning place, I think, in, in, in diagnosing where we start, start the conversation. That's really helpful. And what I've noticed is, depending on your background, you interact with, I don't know, Brother Finney introduced it as standards very differently, mm-hmm. where some people are desperate for the church to draw some lines. Right. And some people are desperate for the church They're to afraid let go of the church drawn lines, to yeah. let go of some previous lines that have been right. drawn. Right. And so, how do we? How do we? Would you? Uh, how would you advise working with people from different camps around, around sort of standard? <laughs> I'm going to say the word standards just because it was it was right. out there. How do we inter- think about that? Well, I think if if we start where I said, like, let's get on the same page about, let's get our hearts at the same place where we want to find out what God wants us to be as his people, then, then the hope, and it's a, it's an idyllic hope, but the hope is that we can create a, a culture out of, out of looking at the scriptures together, that we can create a place where, where there's enough room for for some individuality for some uh variance between you know some specific manifestation of a principle that there's enough room in there that that we can all move and 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 be moving along in a trajectory like moving in a in a process of growth like developing convictions or making some kind of harmony between our practice and um, and not have to not have to restrict another way to say it uh, uh, about this like difference of where people are coming from uh, from on how the church defines things is edge bound versus center bound like that's another way to say what I already said is that if we're defi- if we have to define what puts you out of our category rather than what we're all trying to produce those are different conversations and we want to be when we look at something like a practical standard, like uh, not wearing jewelry, for instance, or what the apostles mean when they when they say the things that they do about gold and pearls, um, if we approach that, there's the, there's those two approaches are, are possible conclusions. Is like, well, how gold is gold? How much jewelry? Where's the line? Like, okay, so so he said without gold, pearl, and costly array. So, can I wear silver? Can I wear a necklace from my grandma that nobody sees? Can I wear where? Where's the line? Where's the edge where I'm out of square? Versus, why would he say that? What, what's his interest in in saying those things about gold and pearl? Because. If what he's saying is not to wear gold and pearl, but, but titanium would be fine, then it's kind of an absurd construct. Right. There has to be something else that's going on. And getting to the root of what those things are and trying to understand not just what but whys is, is I think, how you develop a, a place in the middle between different things <coughs> coming from different perspectives. Right. And then we, 
I have one more question, but we can skip it if it's worth skipping. Do we have anything to say about written standards versus non-written standards in this conversation and why, where we fall in on that issue? Yeah, I, I, we, we've, we've, we've been very reluctant to make a written list of standards ex exactly for the reasons I just mentioned. That, that it's hard not to create an edge-bound way of thinking if you, if you can run through a checklist and say your skirt should be this long and these things, you can wear a silicone watch but not a gold watch and you can wear this but not that. It, it, it's fraught with so many problems because it's always behind the curve. Like when you, when you change direction and you say, we're not gonna focus on the principles and what God's trying to do with us as a people. We're gonna focus on how we limit the outside edge of that acceptance, then you've changed the whole dynamic of how those conversations run. You don't have to talk about why Paul says not to wear gold and pearl. You just, you just, it, it, either the thing you wear is okay or it's not okay. And it's full circle back to where Finney began this conversation about the, about the, the, the way we approach the church's place in, in our lives and, and how we interact with these practical standards. Let me add a little bit more to that. So it's not that we're trying to be covert yeah. Yeah, or like not teach things, right? I mean, we, we have put out you know, more on, on YouTube and writings and whatnot than most groups. And, and, and it's intentionally, by design, more work to say, okay, you want to know what we think about voting? We're not just going to have a, a list here, okay, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Like, let's, go, let's go listen to the sermon together on voting, and let's have a conversation about what that means for, for you in your, your context there. And so, in general, to get convictions, it's, it's a hard-fought process. It, it's not something you just, you just get from a, a list. You have to you got to wrestle, right? And all of us, when we think about the things that we believe that are cherished, we had to, we had to talk to people, we had to read books, we had to pray, we had to study the Bible, we had to do all these, these different elements that takes time to do that. But then on the other side of that, we're so glad that we went through that journey to actually own that particular conviction. Right. And lists of, of rules or lists of standards don't easily achieve that and in fact they often are counterproductive you can almost resent it uh, you can resent those those rules that's that's one one other point let me put another one which is that this also means that you are entering into a world of subjectivity and conversation about about all the things that we're talking about on this list right and that can be scary and I and there, there's a part of me that, that understands and even in my weaker moments says, like, I oh, wouldn't it be great if we just had this list of standards mm -hmm. and we're done and right. we're, we can just move on. Because as it is, okay, we see somebody who's, who's faltering in some way. We have a conversation. Hey, I'm concerned about this, this, and this. Well, now you've got to explain a why and... You've got to have a lot of, like, hey, because there's this aspect of you and this, and this connects to that. And it's something that can feel 
and it is subjective, but in the end, one of the things that happens through this process is that it's a much more, the accountability is, is going to be resident in the community and in the, in the church body that has to exercise the discernment given by the Holy Spirit to, to determine whether or not a person is in a good place. Because you can have two people literally wearing the identical clothes and one of them is in a great place spiritually and one of them is in a terrible right. place spiritually, right? right. And, and so how do you discern that, right? Standard can't do that for you. It's going to be a group of people right. that, that loves God, that knows the Holy Spirit, that can help take a person through that process. And I think that's, that's a, an important aspect of this is that in even really spiritual assessment, it's a lot more work. It's not something that is a microwave discipleship that you can just press a button and crank it out and, and, and get, get uh, disciples from it. That's okay. And we would say that that's part and parcel of what it is to be a faithful Christian is to walk through these hard questions that are subjective, that are going to be hard questions, that are going to be disagreements, there are going to be a lot of back and forth on those. But through that is growth. Through that is life. Through that is fellowship. Through that is coming to true convictions that we really own. So that first question is is very, very important. And I would say on all these things, I, I was doing a spiritual assessment last night and with a, my wife and I with a young lady, and I told her, this, this, this might take months to go through this, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay that this is going to be something that takes several months for us to work through whatever topics are here to get to the point where you have conviction, primary conviction that you have built uh, through this whole process. And, and, and it's just really the goal, again, of biblical obedience that comes from the heart, that understands principles, that knows how to take principles and premises and stitch them together into conclusions, mm. right? And, and th- that way when a new scenario comes your way that nobody could have anticipated, like, oh, well, I can put together this principle and that principle in this new, this new situation. Mm. Final comment on this is that, you know, there's it, some people wrongly think that this means that it's just like a free-for-all and it's really loose and all that. It's definitely not the case. And one of the one of the consistent attributes that we find, particularly among the prophets in the Old Testament, is that is that they were able to 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 use these principles and to to connect them to modern applications in ways that provoked scandal in that day, right? So that if one relies merely on standards that were created. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30, 100 years ago, who knows? Right. It, it's going to be, by its nature, oblivious to modern right. manifestations of new issues, right? And where, where the prophetic genius, I think, manifests itself is that it's basically people who are simply it's prophets who are consistent in applying biblical principles to new scenarios, right? right? And... And we want to train our people to be able to apply biblical obedience to the the thousand things that are going to come up in the next few years that none of us have any idea what they are, right? right. We just we don't know what the future is. And so 
it's um it's a much more dynamic principle based process where we want people to to be able to to have the law of God written in their hearts such that they can apply it in a thoroughgoing, consistent manner to new scenarios. Right. Yeah, that flexibility and abil- that capacity to, to be current with, with the needs of the church is an important part of that. I, I, have, a, I have a friend um, who's a bishop at a conservative Mennonite church, and he and I were discussing this issue one time, and I told him, my, my problem with the standards approach is this. If you were to say to your people next Sunday, all bets are off. Drive whatever you want, wear whatever you want, go wherever you want, do whatever you want, and your people really believed you meant that. The following Sunday, you'd have two different people show up. You'd have people who didn't change, and you'd have people who changed. For the people that didn't change, the rules had no value. They were living a life that they wanted to live based on conviction and their own personal values. And the people who came the next week and were totally different, they didn't wear head coverings or they didn't wear a dress or they didn't wear this or they drove a sports car, whatever, whatever they were being prohibited from doing because of the rules, they were those same people the week before when they were conformed to the rules. So you have, so what good did they do? They didn't actually provide anything for the people. It just was a way of, it, it just was a way of creating an artificial environment with, with externally imposed constraints. I want to get to a place where we develop exactly what Finney was talking about, where we develop convictions, where we are what we are because it's what we want to be. And there's a there's an area on the periphery of that where we have some, we have to work in common like to make some kind of agreements about what's what's within and without you know how 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 much can we move how much liberty or latitude is there in a given issue some of that's dynamic in the process of of the church but it should be in in the way of defining biblical principles not in creating de novo standards. And then one final question about something you mentioned, Brother Finney. You're okay with this taking months. Mm. And for people going through spiritual assessment, how, how long could it take to work through some of these things? And should we be saying, hey, we're going to work through this together while we're in church together or before? Do you have any, yeah, any thoughts I, on I, that? I try to begin spiritual assessment by calibrating expectations that this is not a fixed time period here. Mm. I, did, I did one spiritual assessment with a couple. It took us, I think, nine months to go. And they were actually fairly advanced in their spiritual knowledge. We, we do a tremendous disservice to to people if we view this as we got to get through it and uh, you know just like, like no that's not the point the point is that this is a a roadmap and you can take detours off the roadmap right. um, to to get to this point of being able to say the same thing to have the same mind I'm using the language of Philippians here where you can have true unity and that just that just takes time and I, I will say that. I think the the general expectation should be that this is going to take going to take some time, and it's going to be weeks to months. 
but before the com- the first com- yeah the first yeah. communion good that, yeah that's really I think that's really important yeah I mean we we just particularly ironically um, in in people who have a Christian background because we all have baggage that we we bring to the table from our church experiences and books that we read and things like that. Some of it may be right, some of it may be wrong. We're not blank slates. And so to go through that and examine that carefully and slowly is an extremely worthwhile enterprise. In terms of what people are doing during that time, I mean, we've we've said uh, very consistently, obviously they're not in agape yet, but there's a great place for coming to our meetings, coming to our prayer meetings, and dialoguing through these items, not just with the person who's doing the spiritual assessment, but with other people to gain perspective on how to, how to answer these questions. Right. And so we, we do have a space that exists for people to be working through these matters in our, in our communities to get to that point of oneness of, of heart and mind. Right, and I would say that there are some people who have a, an immediacy to them that it go it ends right. up going faster, and I, th- I think that's okay. That, that's okay. There, there are definitely right. people who come and right. they they know who we are, they know our materials, they're already on board, they've they've done a lot of due diligence there. Obviously, those people are going to be right. uh, going to be a more rapid experience, but but even there, I, I think we have to watch that there's not a I already know what you think and believe right. it. Well, I'm just, I just want to get through this for the sake of you, right? Like, eh, that makes me a little bit nervous, too. Okay. Well, why don't we start start off here, and I'm sure we'll, we'll come well, up with some I, of these. Before we do, though, I, we've been using terms like agape and communion, and I don't know that we've defined those things. Did we start? We're so far back, but for the sake of yeah. making sure everybody's on the same page, w- w- the way we practice communion is in small, intimate, family-style gatherings around a table where we're eating food together, and, and, and as a part of that meal, we partake of the Lord's Supper. And so that, that, that whole process of that meal, that family meal, we call the agape. It's an early church term that comes from a love feast. And then as a specific part of that meal, then we, we bless the bread and share it, and we bless a cup and we share it. That's just so there's no confusion about how we're using those terms. Yeah, that's really important clarification. All right, what do you believe about war, politics, including voting, nationalism, and non-resistance? Yeah, l- let me start this one off here. So th- there's no way we could go through in depth these, I mean, we'd be this would be a 50-hour set of, of uh, talks that we would have to, to go through in order to, to do this, but what I would say is on a lot of these questions is that we have lots of materials mm. online about mm. this. And what we start with here is we want to hear from the individual. Okay, where where are you? And then we modulate our response mm. based on well, that. We, in other words, we don't go out and say, we believe this, 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 this. Do you agree? Oh, yeah, I agree. And, you know, that <laughs> that's, um, that's not a, a productive way of doing this. These are framed as questions so that it can be like a diagnostic that gives us an ability to to say, okay, this is an area where we need to spend time. And I would say on this one, I mean, we have a lot of materials online and the Just War Debate and other materials that are great places for people who want to know our general position on things. But with a lot of these questions, I think we have to 
we have to understand that it begins with hearing from the individual and where they're at before we can proceed. And that there's a people are coming from a range of places, you know. So somebody could somebody could be like in this particular um, question. Somebody could be well. I'm I'm not I'm not particularly interested in national violence, but I think it's important for us to vote in local elections. Or, um, or none of those are convictions in my life. Or a whole range of places where people are at. And so figuring out, like Finney said, figuring out where where people are coming to us from, then we can say, okay, well here's here's where we need to talk, and here's where here's where we're in concord. Okay. And so we shouldn't get into the nitty gritty here. I, I don't. I don't think that that's probably a, the, the right way to material. do this. It'd be too much material. I would just refer anyone who wants to go deeper right. online. We have, I mean, hours and hours of content on really all these topics here. I think what would probably be good to do is to talk about common scenarios or questions that emerge as we as we work right. through these. Well, these and it's questions. maybe worth mentioning at this juncture too that. There's a question to be had about who is doing spiritual assessments. Right. Um, to to have some to for the people that are going through this with people, there should be a a, a good basis for being able to discuss those particular right. issues. You know, we we talk about divorce or marriage in, in spiritual assessment, and it's often the case that that I'm talking to somebody about that particular issue and they're like, you know, I, yeah, I get it. I'm, I'm on board with that. I don't know that I could give a discourse on the particular nuances of our position on X, Y, or Z, but I, but I hear you and I don't have any problems with that and I understand where the church is coming from and it's teaching and I think that's good. That's okay. But the person giving the spiritual assessment needs to be able to do that. Right. They need to have a basis of knowledge with the church's teachings and understanding that they can answer those questions, that they can address the 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 things that come up and are able to answer for for right. where the church is coming at in these particular issues. Not just affirm sort of a a mid assessment Bible study is okay. Absolutely. If you need if you need to pause and say, hey, take I'm the gonna, time to I'm do gonna it. go research this a little bit more to come back to you that you should right. <laughs> you should be able to do that and then come back and visit that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And so I'll just continue to go through these and maybe if we say any have any high level right high level things to say. I I will say that with this the question we just read about war politics and resistance, oftentimes people have already kind of fought with that before they start because right. they already know and they wouldn't have asked for a spiritual assessment if they know if you're going to get to the it's it's usually already a well known. The the only thing I would say about this question here is that the root of it is a two kingdoms right. uh, right. perspective. And it's very easy to have these beliefs that are kind of appendages onto maybe like a Protestant core. And it's an awkward fit. And, and, and we've seen many, many groups over history jettison their beliefs on all these concepts because they're not properly grounded in a two kingdoms right. theology. And so we we like to emphasize that in our answers to these to these topics in particular. All right. Let's go to this next one here. What is your practice regarding accumulation of money and treasures on earth? Yeah, I mean same thing. We have we have a, a set of messages on this. It's um 
I actually gave it on, on the Sermon on the Mount there that I refer people to. And this is a big issue today. I mean, and I, and I work, I work in, in an industry that's tainted with this uh, quite a bit. And so I, I love talking about this topic because it is something that is surprisingly insidious where we can put ourselves in places of comfort even unintentionally and kind of drift into the the American dream type model where it's just about like making up this nest egg of money that you're going to go retire and play golf with and it's a this is a, another great example of where if you just have more of a mathematical standard you can miss mm-hmm. some very deep principles here that are so important because we need to feel we should always be feeling like we're we're at the point of I don't know if I can I can make it I'm, I'm my generosity is is to the point where I'm having to trust God if we're not living lives of trust something is wrong and it's again it's very very easy to default into particularly the the Western mindset where the whole system is based on, let me create a structure where you don't need to trust God because everything is is so uh, well-planned and you've got sufficient money to, to, um, to retire on that it, it, that is a deadening force on our spiritual life. And it will, it has, and it will continue to corrode people. I, I often think that, I mentioned this in an earlier point that pornography and sexual dysfunction is is probably the number one struggle of mm-hmm. younger men and to some extent younger women. I think this this may be the number one struggle of the older generation, the like past 40, where it's like get a nice business, live a nice life, have a nice house and silently but surely you you lose your your zeal for God here, and so this is this is a very personal question. So again, it requires probing about about what this is, but very very important. In essence, what we're asking when we talk about this issue is, what does it cost you to be a Christian? Like, what parts of your life are different because of your Christianity? Where where are you invested in something aside from yourself? What what does your life look like because of your commitment to Christ and his kingdom that would be different otherwise? That, that's essentially where we're getting at with these. And economics, Jesus uses it that way, and the church uses it that way today. That's a good way to expose what your life is really built out of, what your focus is, is trained on, and what you're doing with your life. So this, the question, it begs the other <coughs> question of, if we're if we're properly dealing with the issue of laying up treasures on earth, the, the only remedy is that we have we're we're focusing on treasures in heaven. Yeah. Jesus postulates it that way for a reason. Got it. And I know it, it might, might I'm, I won't ask too many questions, but we don't prohibit saving money towards a cause. It's definitely not something that. But there, there's different groups that go to different extremes on this. Right, and this is where the, these principles, again, come into, right. into play, right? So, I mean, somebody says, I want to own a house, and I need to save for that goal. Okay, well, that's okay, but there better be a limited, goal-directed 
uh, amount here that you're trying to achieve in order to do that. I get way more concerned with these aimless right. piles of money that get accumulated that are more about security than about something something specific. The thing that always gets me is in James, it says the rust of their money is a witness against them. Like mm. the 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 money without purpose. Right. Like it's just sitting there it's just sitting there rusting. Right. It has no value, it has no importance. It's not being dedicated to something, it's not being used for anything. It's just being heaped up. Right. And then this next question kind of dovetails off of this. Do you have high debt? This has to do with like how, how, because because money is an important diagnostic for how we're living our Christian lives, our interaction with money and possessions are important in who, who we are and who we've been made in Christ. A part of that is how we've learned to be responsible with the means that we have. And so high debt ratios can be indicative of financial irresponsibility or misplaced purposes and goals or like focusing on things that we, that are that 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 we shouldn't be focusing on and some of those not always but sometimes high debt ratios can be a can be a reflection of those kinds of poor choices mm-hmm. no that's good right. does your occupation have ethical entanglements such as oaths weapons impurity yeah, I mean, this is one that where we have had to ask different folks over the years to to change their their career, to change their tra- trajectory over specific issues there. And it's so case by case that, you know, it's hard to say there's one, one category to be watching out for here. But I think for the person doing the spiritual assessment to be to be attentive to particularly conscience violating areas that can can emerge there. It's it's very common, and I think we need to all be pressing in to, to as best we can into into careers that we don't need to be feeling uh, ashamed or something where we're going to stand before God one day and say, mm-hmm. "Actually, I." This is again that James passage that you mentioned, uh, that same James passage where he talks about uh, this indictment on the rich because they're exploiting the poor and he says like don't you hear they're they're howling and they're mm-hmm. the, the result of all of your your greed so like one place would be like you think of computer programming as pretty innocuous profession but if you're computer programming for defense funds for military defense then that's an ethical entanglement that you need to you need to set in order right and some of these are more straightforward than others right my right. background is the military. It's right. very straightforward. The oath was right. black and white there. So what are some of the, the some good probing questions that you think you can ask people? Is, are there any... I, I haven't encountered that in any assessment I've done, so I'm just curious if there's any, any other questions we can be thinking about. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking of one example that was from a spiritual assessment earlier this year where the individual worked in retail... And he was selling specific products that were clearly unethical. And and even he, I, I asked him, is there anything about your work that bothers your conscience? And he volunteered this. He says, uh, there's this product that I have to sell, and it involves this, this, and this. And 
it's like, well, I mean, your own conscience is telling you here that right. that's that's wrong. How do you? How can we think about changing your your career? That's the same experience I've had. Okay. To ask people, is there anything that bothers your conscience yeah. about the work that you do? That's a good. That's a good probing question. Right. Good. Well, let's move on here. What is your belief and practice regarding worldly entertainment, such as TV, movies, worldly music, professional sports, clubs, etc.? Yeah, we we again have messages online about this. I, I would say this is another top three issue that is out there, and you know this is this is one that I feel like the whole world is is re- rewiring around a lot of these questions and sorry, around a lot of these practices where, you know, not a lot of people today watch TV shows like they did in the 80s. It's mostly through phones and online, etc. And because of that, the lines are much blurrier about what is worldly entertainment and how do we, how do we safeguard ourselves against this. Th- th- this is such a major area of concern because, okay, if you take like, a lot of the issues about sexuality, for example, why have they grown in, why is all the confusion propagated so effectively uh, in the world? It's because of this, right? This is a Trojan horse. Why is there so much deviance sexually now? Well, it's because of of this, again, that people people don't realize how much this shapes your your beauty, your humor, what's right, what's wrong. And we need to be very, very vigilant about this. The number of people that I know personally that have had their faith ultimately torpedoed from this is very, very high. And again, it's easy to let our guards down around this, um, but we do that at great at great peril. And it's why we need to keep talking about it, because because old standards from cable television industry in the 80s and 90s aren't aren't competent to keep up with the phone in your pocket the phone in your pocket and and neither is avoidance like i i think it's something that the the scope and the dynamics of these questions it it, it plays out in a in a very obvious way for those of us who live in urban environments like if you if if your strategy was just to avoid the world in reclusion say you totally disconnect well you're still exposed to it when you're standing on the subway platform it's in the advertising it's in the billboards like learning how to interact with our place in a world that's hostile to our faith is it, we have to develop strategies for doing those things to recognizing where am I being pulled away? Where am I being tricked? Where am I being, you know, dazzled by the lights and the brights and the things that are are designed to capture my attention and my affections? And assessing those things, we need strategies in place. We need to have conversations about how to do those things. And then I, I often like to tell, talk to people about the things that paint sin in a positive light are mm-hmm. easily run away from those but there's a new category that I've been noticing with like Christian media mm. and that there's a lot of Christian media out there too with music with entertainment do you have any thoughts on how we should be interacting with like sort of a <laughs> this new category of media that's coming out I don't know that I do but a category that's 
proximal is like our our interaction with like sports and diversion. I I have you know there's a place for mixed feelings. I mean, to be you know, it, how wholesome is it to go throw a ball with your boy? You know, like those kinds of those kinds of interactions, just being physical in the physical world, is one category of thing. But we all know that that crosses like when. But you move so like piece by piece from throwing a ball in the backyard with your boy to 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 the local baseball club to really get it if you're going to do it you should do it well and who does it the best well it's the major league players so let's go to the Red Sox game and see how it's really done and wouldn't that be great if your life was out of that and then you're in fandom and like that slide is a real thing like that it's it's designed to be a slide and so being conscious of all those things, whether it's these, you know, interactions with with Christian style media or diversion or mm -hmm. sports or where, what do we want our focus and our lives to be about is at the end of all these questions. Great. Would you add anything? Anything there? I, I think that's good, and that this is where there's there's again great principles that we can we can rely on here to to help us know when that line is crossed. All of us are, are great with throwing throwing baseballs around with our, our children. But where where it turns into delighting in other people's loss, you know, that like something is wrong there. You know, when it, it there's all I, I grew up sadly watching a lot of professional sports and the end of the game and some people are popping the champagne corks and dumping it on each other and then the other side is just totally dejected and you know my life is is ruined because of like something is wrong about that scenario where you have you can't have um, a uh, a lifting up of others in ways that are are not at great emotional cost I've, I've often used the principle that Jesus says is, is whatever is highly exalted among man is an abomination before God. And the Red Sox are highly exalted among man. That's a really powerful clue because the sensibilities of the world are so disordered that whatever it is that they're just gaga over and excited about, like probably, almost certainly, those are things where there's just idolatry that's there. One of my, one of my main problems that I have with a lot of the professing Christian world is an inability to detect idolatry. Mm. You know, if you if you look at Old Testament Israel, you know, like a lot of us are kind of amazed, like how do they keep falling into this again and again? Well, it's because it, the, the guise was slightly different and a lot of it was ostensibly worshiping Yahweh right. in some other way, in some other form that they just, they missed, right? And even the golden calf, Aaron says, these are your gods, O Israel, who led you out of Egypt. And the, um, and, and the ability to detect idols and to recognize when it turns into this, this, this unhealthy uh, lifting up of some other person, team, activity over and against our Christian obligations and duties. I mean, another great 
uh, test is like, how, okay, how does your devotion to your prayer life and the Word in relation to your devotion to whatever this the, the matter is in question there, right? Like, if there's a if there's a big mismatch there, which is usually the case, people will say, oh yeah, I watch I watch baseball for two hours a day, and I didn't pray. Or I read my Bible for five minutes. You think like, oh, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem like a life that's seeking first the kingdom. So, so we need to think long and hard about that. And I always, I always find it really interesting that John ends his epistle, First John, by saying, "Little children, keep yourselves from idols." He knows that they're there. He knows that it requires great vigilance to find them, and uproot them and smash them. And that will always be a problem that we have to to face, and and look out for. And this is again where I think the body can be really helpful here. And we talk about this a lot in our discipleship groups where we say, like, this is, this is what I've been looking at in the last week. This is how much time I'm spending here. And laying that before others and getting the input of the body on that is very valuable. I think, too, in this whole category of things, there's, I, I notice in my own life that there are things that, I, let me start over again. There's a worship can be a good calibrating tool for how to evaluate these things. Like there are things in my life that that I don't feel I don't feel morally repelled from. Like I don't feel like there's an ethical problem with them. In other words, my Christian liberty allows their use or consumption or whatever. But I find that exposure in some cases or overexposure in others it just kind of like deadens my sense of worship. It pulls me away from the the things that make me feel really alive in Christ, mm-hmm. and it's a good, it's 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 just good to be mindful of those things and to look for that in my life. What what's what's calling me to my place in in who I am in in God and in Christ, and what's p- pulling me away from that? And those aren't always sometimes there, but they aren't always moral wrongs. Hebrews says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Yeah, I, yeah thanks for all your thoughts there. I, I, also, I also always try to paint this picture of life without these things, and it can be incredibly exciting. <laughs> like a mm-hmm. lot of people know there's a life beyond these that's even like vastly it's, superior. That, not just that. It's, to, yeah, it's, you know, th- there's, there's another principle here. We could probably spend a lot of time on this, but searching out your your thoughts about where you look for refuge and rest is a very profitable exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, all throughout the Psalms there's this concept of God is our refuge, God is our our place of 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 shelter. When when we think about what so much of particularly watching things, participation mm-hmm. less so, but it can be, but particularly watching things they, they're they're ultimately places where we're looking to de-stress and decompress and like oh I get to, and and that is that is a powerful indicator about the affections of your heart mm. and when you can lay down the the old man and have have a renewal of your affections being rooted in God I mean I I, I will will say that God, I, I, this is an area where I personally was deeply in bondage to um, TV, movies, professional sports, all that. 
and now I look at it and I just think, what a waste of time. Like that's right. just like, what am I going to get there? And it's this cotton candy feeling where you, you go there and you consume it and there's a little bit of a short term high, but then you look back at the end and you just think, what did I do? Right. You just feel, you feel sort of gross and disgusting as opposed to time in the word, time in prayer, time in fellowship, time in evangelism. And after those seasons, you look back and then you think like, wow, this is, this is time that was so well spent that I am, I know I'm, I'm, I feel good in the moment and a million years from now, five million years from now, when we're dead, I'm going to look back at that time and say that was an excellent investment there. And we as humans know that intrinsically, uh, as Christians, I should say, know that in, intrinsically and to begin to partake in the joys of walking with God and investing in good works is, is incredible. Yeah. So the, the next question here, different different category. What is your belief and practice on the woman's head covering in First Corinthians eleven? What should influence the style and size of the head covering? Given the trend of camouflage head coverings, I, those are that are small, posterior, blended in color, or simply headbands. How should one take care to guard against being ashamed of the head covering? Yeah, I can start on this one. Again, we have a lot of messages online about this as well that go into the details. Yeah, the details of it. I'll just, high level, I'll say that some of the mistakes that are often made here are people miss the fact that Paul gives multiple arguments for the head covering. It's not just... One thing. It's not just one thing. Because a lot of people treat it as it's a sign of submission. Right. And the word sign isn't even there in Greek. It's, it's added in English translations. Uh, it's a very unfortunate translation. Modesty is an argument. Expressing headship is an argument. Expressing creation order is another. I mean, and then universality of the church. There's there's a range of arguments. Supernatural. That, supernatural, right? Because of the angels in verse ten. Those are all there, and Paul, in general, when he's very passionate about something, he gives lots of arguments, and it's easy to just lock in on one and to miss the, the full range of what he's saying. He does something similar in 1 Corinthians about eating meat, sacrificed idols, where he gives lots of arguments. This is one where when you understand the range of arguments, a lot of these more token head coverings, this gets back to what I was saying before in that, that first one, they should melt away. Because mm -hmm. if you just see this as the sign, something that you do to be part of a group or agree to some standard, you, you really miss the heart of what Paul is saying there. Um, and that's a that's a huge shame. So it's interesting. When you look at the early, you know, today we call it headship veiling and things like that. When you read the early church on this, the majority of what they saw, in the, at least in the pre-Nicene church fathers, was actually modesty. Um, it's very striking. Mm -hmm. If you go and look in David Brousseau's Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs, the reason they did is because basically we have a bad translation of first head. And when you see the head covering, as the native Koine Greek speakers did, as, of course, they saw the other dimensions as well, but as modesty being a significant component, that totally changes the way that you, you do this. And a lot of the, the camouflage head coverings that are described here just completely miss that, that dimension there. Can you elaborate on camouflage head covering? <coughs> I know it, it's. I know what you mean by it. Yeah, it's just 
they're often very small. They're often things that you, you can only see from behind or maybe on the side. They're blended in color. They're, or they're trying to not look like a head covering. They're trying to not look like a head covering. And, of course, the other irony is that it's a little bit like dancing, where if you go out and you kind of dance a little bit, you look more awkward <laughs> and out of place than someone who's actually dancing, right? And I, I've often felt like these kind of in-between head coverings are just, you're in no man's land. You're not either, you're not wearing a biblical head covering, nor are you not wearing one, and it just, it just ends up being awkward. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll, these in general are, are, are trends that we see a lot, and because of this tradition two style appeal, where, okay, if you do this, you're fine, it encourages that minimalism, and it also encourages almost like a shame like you, I often get the sense like I think you're actually ashamed of this, and you're not really doing this in a heartfelt way to do what the head covering is supposed to do, which is to be a positive public witness to all the truths that Paul describes in First Corinthians 11. You can also see this where, you know, if you miss the modesty piece, people will have the head covering and they'll have these little twirls of hair all over and kind of styling it all around it, and again, it, it just it completely contradicts the spirit of the argument that is given there uh, by Paul. I Again, I have a, a three-part message on this online where I talk about this in, in more detail, but I would say that trend is, is, is tragically common in the world today. And I think just what it means to be Christian, I, I think being here has made it clear to me that all kinds of communities are unashamedly presenting themselves in the world around them as who they are. The immigrant community, the Muslim community, Haitian women wear head coverings. Like, there, there's lots of people in, in, in our area that are just who they are. Like, here's who I am. And, and they present themselves in, in the public square um, unashamed of who they are. And it's sad to me when we're ashamed to, be, right. to appear Christian. Like we we don't want we don't want it to be known that this actually means something to me. It's not it's not just the headband that I chose that matches my outfit today. Yeah, and I would I would recommend the the, the sermons to mm-hmm. to get more into this, especially if someone is, is new to it. There, right? Um, and then to find sermons, you just go at least right now YouTube channel, YouTube our channel. website. I know there's even I know you can search podcasts now and yeah. pull up our messages, so really accessible. All right, what is your practice with jewelry, including the wedding ring and cosmetics? And then there's a little caveat: many Anabaptist background people will paint their nails, use makeup, style their hair, wear heels, while yet adhering to a few rules. Same kind of thing. What what I what I like to focus on, oftentimes in this is sometimes I think people think there's an exception for the wedding ring, that it's a separate class of of jewelry, and that for some for some reason because of our emotional attachment to it or because of its signification culturally within our 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 culture. Like the idea of wearing a wedding ring is kind of exempted from being under the scrutiny of Paul's teaching about about jewelry, and 
so this is where we end up seeing a lot of this stuff like, well, okay, well, it's not out of gold, it's out of silver, or it's out of steel, or it's out of some common metal, so it's okay. Like, Paul's interest is really just about luxury. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with how that's being used. It's just don't have precious metals. Don't spend money on them, maybe is even a more extrapolated way of saying that. But I think it misses the point, especially in Peter. And, and what I think, when Peter talks about these things, so you have a very general prohibition in Paul. Don't wear gold pearl costly ray. It's simple terms, simple words, simple ideas, like just don't wear them. It's in a pastoral epistle. He's just making a comment on what to do and what not to do. But Peter expands on these ideas quite a bit, and he says something more like, don't use these things to, to, to embellish who you are. In other words, um, he, he's contrasting outward adornment with inward adornment. He's saying people in our day, in our world, are using these things to make statements about who they are, about their beauty, about their value in, in, their cult, in their society, about who they are and how they should be treated. Don't do that. Don't use your body that way. Use your virtue that way. If We should make statements about our value. We should make statements about our beauty. But from the Christian perspective, those aren't externally observable things. Mm-hmm. They're our disposition in the world. And so in Peter's passage, I think the, the wedding ring is exactly the case that he's trying to, to get at. To, to make a statement with a piece of jewelry on my body anywhere that's trying to signify to the world around me that I'm chaste or committed to my, my spouse is exactly the problem that Peter's trying to get to in his passage. Sometimes that gets missed in this conversation. I'll add, I'll add two things to this question here. So when we get to the why, when we ask the why in the, in the first Timothy 2 passage, Paul says he doesn't want people to wear the gold, pearls, expensive clothes. And he ends by saying, appropriate for those who worship God. Right. Right? And the implication here is that if you enter into that realm, you're not worshiping God. What is worshiping God? It's devoting yourself to God. It's, right. it's, it's, it's uh, glorifying God. The problem with the whole realm of fashion and jewelry is that it's about bringing attention to yourself. And at its, at its core, and I, and I can say, especially when I was in high school, I was in bondage to this myself. I wanted to be cool. I wanted people to, to like me. I styled my hair in a certain way, wore certain clothes, all that. And I was looking for approval from other people because I wanted their attention and admiration. That is the exact opposite of what a God worshiper does who says, no, put your attention, put your focus Put, put your glory, not on me. Don't, don't be impressed at my, my style on God himself. When you start to get a hold of that, a lot of these other things, putting right. things on your nails, whatever it is, red or clear, what doesn't matter. It's, these are all attempts to gain some kind of approval, gain some kind of status with other people that is not about worshiping God. And so all of these these different categories, if we just understand the principle for it, it takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to be 
making endless rules about it because we just have to ask, how can I today dress in a way that isn't about bringing attention to me? It's about uh, about me bringing glory to God. There is There are other dimensions as well of simplicity and things like that, which are good. The other thing, which I would say too, on the wedding ring, I agree with everything that Brother Matthew said, but I would also add another one, which is that marriage is a special case in that God is the one who created the marriage covenant, and thus he determines the sign of the covenant, right? right? Mm -hmm. And we don't mess with that. So, like, if you're, let's use a different example. If you're living in Old Testament Israel, and God has said circumcision and Sabbath are the, the key signs of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant, and you say, oh, well, you know what? Actually, I'm going to have another covenant, uh, another sign be be the marker of this covenant. And instead of that, we're going to, um, we're going to have, uh, to show that we're Jews, we're going to put a ring on our toe. You know, like, and everybody's like, we got to have this ring on our toe. Like, that would not just be neutral. That would be wrong. That would be actually denying the authority that God has as the one who creates the covenant and declares its sign. And, you know, that line that, that is used in weddings, with this ring, I thee wed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just pagan, it's wrong, it's completely, completely unchristian. The ring doesn't make you wed at all. And it's, it really goes back to pagan superstitions that are, they're just wrong. And I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed that more people don't understand the impact of messing with these covenant signs that God has given to us. It's, it's superstitious. It invites all kinds of other, other problems into, into the world of, of how we think about marriage that we don't, we don't want to go there. I could talk about this for a long time, but I would, I would say that's a complementary dimension to understand why we, we don't advocate at all the, the wedding ring. And with the broader appearance issues, you know, I think that they're, they're, this question is actually really connected in my mind to the question of worldliness because what I mean by that is when we when we examine, you know, things like makeup and styling hair and the way we dress and the way we're appearing in the world around us, those are conscious choices that we're making and we're we know about about humans that those choices are not without consequence either. Like we're we're whether we're whether we're thinking through all the implications or not, we're doing it for a reason. Mm-hmm. And and what happens oftentimes is that we just kind of like get swept away with with the way that works in the world around us without being critical of some of the really bad problems that the world is sowing and reaping in the way that they're addressing these issues of of personal appearance and beauty standards. I think that, you know, so many of these issues, uh, uh, they, they interact with each other, but like a hyper-sexualized culture with a, a, a lot of pressure on, on people's individual appearance and crafting these like images of self that appeal to what's being appealed to in, in the world, they create a really like broken interior framework of personhood. Like that, um, 
The saddest creature I can imagine is the American girl growing up in high school, trying to figure out how she's supposed to make herself conform to this, everything she's being, having crammed down her throat about what she's supposed to look like to be valued, to be pretty, to be acceptable. And like all this stuff is crammed. I think of it every time I read that passage, be not conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind conformity is what the world is trying to do. We're all under this pressure, like this gravity of of what the world wants us to be. And these are the mechanisms that it uses, especially with women, to conform, to get you, you need to go along with what we say is important. Mm. And there's something about the Christian ethos that kind of shatters that paradigm and and emerges as as what God intended, like it breaks that that pressure and it transforms us back into the place where we find our value in who we are in God, like as his creation, like I don't have to put that stuff on me. I don't have to make this, I don't have to take my body and run razors over it or make it smell certain ways or put perfumes or, or push and prod and pull and primp and preen and all these things. God made me, and he's, he wants me to be this way, and I can find value in that instead of everything out there. And then just two follow-up questions. I think you, you address these both, and I think they come up a lot, is there's a, there's a word added into like the NKJD translation about don't let your adornment be merely. Yeah, that's terrible. Th- there's the merely word, and that, that comes up a lot. Uh, maybe one of you can speak to that. And then the second one is this new fad with the, the silicone wedding ring, mm-hmm. that it's more like, yeah, I get the gold, but I want mm-hmm. the signal to the world, right. and, and especially in the U.S. context. Yeah, so the, that merely one, that's the First Peter 3 passage right. where it, it says, uh, in New King James, do not merely right. adorn yourselves outwardly. Um, the NASB does that as well, which yeah. is just so sad. Um, yeah, it, it literally takes something and makes it the opposite of what it, what it's supposed to mean. So if I were to say to you, Brother Zach, don't go to the store, and then and then somebody else says to you, don't merely go to the store, they mean completely different things. Right. The first person says, don't go to the store. The second person, go to the store and right. do something else, right? And that word is was inserted by the translators, and it's it's a complete capitulation to the world that is one of the great blots on the New King James and NASB. Uh, so it's just wrong, and so we need right. to be aware of that. With uh, with the silicone wedding rings, yeah, I mean, this goes back to what I was saying before, that you're still appealing to a worldly device to signal a covenant sign, and that's not the right... We, we don't... We don't... Shouldn't do that. I'm, right. um, if I were to get in somebody's car and I were to they call themselves a Christian. And I, I sit down next to them in the passenger seat, and I see a rabbit's foot hanging from the rear view mirror. I'm going to say, what are you doing? Why do you have a rabbit's foot hanging from your rear view mirror? That's, that's pagan. That's wrong. We have right. no business doing that. I don't care if it's made of straw or silicon or whatever it is. It's not the sign of marriage. And we are not, we don't have the authority to create new signs, you know, and it's it, it's interesting if you if I use a different example in India. Historically, the sign of of wedding is the the bindi, the dot on the forehead, right? And 
also interestingly has a pagan origin, used to be involved in worshiping the sun god. So what do we do there? Okay, we get married. Now we're going to put a dot on our head that is is associated with worship of the sun god. Now it's become more of a beauty symbol, um, admittedly. But hopefully we have the sensibility to say, like, no, this is not the marriage sign. I don't care if it's a dot on the head, a ring on your finger, or any other practice there. We don't do these things because God is the one who tells us um, how we are to comport ourselves. And people who are worried about, oh, I'm, you know, somebody's going to hit on my husband or my wife or whatever it is. Well, well, you need to conduct yourself in a chase, chaste conduct where that's not the case. And a ring is not, right. is not the, the, the defense there. The defense is conducting yourselves in ways that communicate that you are betrothed to somebody else or that you're married to somebody else. And there's a million ways of, of addressing that, that, that the ring is, is, is a poor substitute for. And our single people need to protect themselves from that same stuff. Right. Exactly. Right. They don't, they don't have access to wedding rings. They, right. still need to, they still need to conduct themselves in the world in a way that they're not on the open market. Right. Yeah, this... Next question is a, a big one, but it ties back to everything we've been talking about. What does modesty mean to you? How would you define modesty? And that's the the openness of that question is intentional. What what I what I'm what I'm trying to figure out is how how do you make those distinctions? So here's a word that gets used. What does it mean? How, how do you create parameters around this? And this is what we're trying to get out. Not, not that, that, that that matches point for point, color for color, length for length with some arbitrary standard, but that there's some way to define these things in your life. If the apostle's telling us to, to, to use modest apparel, what does that mean? How do, how do we create a way of being obedient to that apostolic admonition? And so then we can have a discussion. We can hear from them how they're thinking about those things. We can talk about how we think about those things and engage in a discussion about a healthy way to define these biblical principles. Yeah, and, you know, again, here's where we're not going to necessarily give rigid prescriptions about, you know, this length of skirt or something like that. But, but, but I will say that there are good ways of triangulating and and figuring out for people who who really don't know I mean it, I, I do think that there is a God-given conscience that we have around this that we should be seeking to to restore but specifically for example you can say okay well modesty does have there are specific uh, parameters and guidelines that the Bible describes around around modesty so for example uh, legs are described as immodest, even for men. Um, if you remember, right after the Ten Commandments are given, uh, God tells the people when when the people go up on the altar to sacrifice, He doesn't want there to be mm-hmm. stairway uh, like staircases on there. It's pretty amazing because He's worried just that amount of of uh, of uh, exposure is going to be immodest for the men. Very interesting. There, uh, there's similar. Uh, concepts of, of um, Isaiah described for women 
we see the Bible speak about 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 breasts, about uh, the, the hair. I mean, there's there's different places there where these are described, and so we do have a biblical set of of uh, passages that come to bear on this. We also can ask, what does nature itself tell us? This is an argument that Paul makes in First Corinthians 11, and what I, what he means by that is. What is the consensus across culture and time? And, I mean, there's a lot of things that are very historically anomalous. You did not see until fairly recent, uh, like, 20th century, the practice of of men wearing shorts, for example. That was just, that would have been weird. You would have thought, people would have thought you were a little child if you were doing that. Uh, There are... You can go to Hindu countries like India. Their standard of modesty is higher than it is in the West today because, again, nature itself communicates certain proprieties that we can learn from. And if we just look at the people around us, then we're going to miss what nature itself says because it is possible to fall into a historic myopia there. And then I think another clue is just asking what's sexually provocative. What is, what is, what what are the body parts that have that certainly Madison Avenue uses, Hollywood uses, mm-hmm. to to get people's attention and eyes on that individual, right? And we're we're, we're living in a state of oblivion if we don't recognize that. That is being used in every grocery store aisle with the magazines, every ad, every... I mean, people use these things to draw the eye there. And so these are, these are clues that we can use. These are, again, triangulation principles that we can use to figure out what, is, what does modesty look like. And I would again say that the goal is not to toe a line. The goal is to, to say, like, I'm going to obey gladly and not in a in a begrudging way so that we are so that we're honoring God. L- last thing I'll say on this is that you know it's a, a lot of people will will sometimes say um, you know what is the relationship or ask what is the relationship between culpability on the man's side and on the woman's side on this which it's, a, it's an important question and I see it as a little bit like as like uh, anger, where there's there's culpability on both sides. There there can be, not always, but there but there can be. Like so, if somebody goes and provokes somebody else, and the other person gets angry, well, you know, the person who got angry shouldn't have gotten angry, but neither should the person have been poking them. Uh, the in the same way, someone who is unnecessarily being immodest, they have a measure of culpability, as does the man. Who is gazing at them? So it, it's a two-way street there, and so we don't want to put all the blame on the women. We don't put all the blame on the man there, and there are times where there's just it is entirely um, uh, it's the man's problem because he's he's fantasizing in ways that are 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 uh, inappropriate there. I, I would I would just in general say that modesty is something that is a hot button issue mm-hmm. in a lot of our settings. It can feel overdone. Sometimes it can feel like, oh, here we go again. We've got to talk about modesty. To some extent, that's true, but, but, but to some extent, it's also because there's just really bad teaching in it, right. and we live in this realm of confusion, and so we have to kind of revisit it 
again and again. Right. Um, and I hope that these these types of principles can help us get to the point where it's not this this like obsession litmus test that's the focus of the whole group. I think too, there's a couple of principles that we often we often talk about in connection with this conversation and. One is is the principle of shame and covering from from the fall. The 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 innovation of of eating the f the fruit is that they know that they're naked. That consciousness is something that we still bear. We still know, and you can watch it in in child development. Like I have little little infants and toddlers that have almost zero awareness of their nakedness. They'll. Uh, <laughs> I had a toddler at a meeting the other day actually come out of the bathroom without his pants on. They, they don't have a sense of shame and propriety about their body. But they'll develop it, and they develop it natively. And that sense of shame is, 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 is demonstrated in the fall, and there's a remedy for it. They choose a, an insufficient means, and God provides a sufficient means to cover themselves. So there's some principle in covering the form of the body that's that goes all the way back to the fall. And then the other the other kind of like New Testament principles is this this idea of simplicity or decoration that we're not using our bodies we're not putting baubles on ourselves or we're not we're not using our outward appearance in order to try to affect this either attention on self or sexual attraction or other other ways that people use their bodies. The, the the Christian view is that that's not an appropriate use of the body. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So thanks for coming. In. And then, I think it's I think you hit it really well. But it's e equally applicable to men and women. Absolutely. Is a is a huge, a huge premise here. And I think that one is a really surprising one. And I think we need to be working. There's with a couple that. reasons for that, and a, and and an associated principle too. I think gender distinction is an important principle right. of of how we dress as Christians as well, that, that while the world is losing its sense for gender distinction, we develop our gender distinction from God, from the creation. He created them male and female. And, and that distinction is an important one, and, and watching the world around us lose that distinction should cause us to value it. It should cause us to understand it's an important thing for us to hold on to. So there are practical ways to do that. But the, the, um, that, that male and female role, you know, there's a couple of ways in which that matters. I think that, um, so, so when, I, when I think about the way that the Christian church appears in the world, it bothers me if women bear all the brunt mm -hmm. of a Christian appearance. Um, early in my Christian journey, uh, a couple had a couple experiences. Like I remember, my wife started covering her head. She was changing the way she dressed, and we would go to we would be out in public somewhere, and she'd say, uh, somebody would come up to her and say, "Oh, who are you? What's your religion? Where do you go to church? All this stuff." And she'd have a conversation with them, and I'd come around the corner in the grocery store, and I'm in shorts and a Yankees cap, and I stand next to my wife, right. and I'm like, 
oh yeah, here's who we are. Here's what, and the guy looks at me like, who are you? Like you don't belong. This doesn't match. Right. You see it with the Muslim community too, right? Like you see right. women that are that are in woman's in a head covering a dress and the guys same kind of thing like in shorts and a ball cap and you're like how does this go together the incongruity of that picture is off-putting it's like i don't trust that whatever that is i don't like that and we need to own that for ourselves as well and so there's some practical ways that i think we should be mindful of that the other thing like about these gender distinction issues that's relevant to me is like people I, i think people making it much more complicated than it has to be if there's a premise for being gender distinct, like it's an easy thing to apply, right? So like, what does that mean to be gender distinct? Well, if a woman wears something that if I wore it, I would look like I was trying to appear as a woman, that's clearly a gender distinct outfit for a woman. So that, that applies. Like if we want women to wear gender distinct clothes, they should wear something that men would look like they were trying to be women if they wore it. Right. That's a, that, a, to me, that's an easy litmus test for looking at these kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Would you have anything to add there? No, that's good. And I, I'll think, I just would revisit the head covering one that it also applies to men. That mm. It's a, the, the same principle. Not covering their heads, yeah, right. That it's something that, you, the, the picture of a man in a hat with shorts standing next to a, mm-hmm. a head-covered woman in a dress right. should be very <laughs> off-putting. Yeah. Right. All right, and then let's move into this next one here. What biases and prejudices do you think you have? This is one of my favorite questions on here. And, and oftentimes we come to this point and people are like, I don't know, what are you talking about? The reason we ask this is is what we're trying to communicate to people is how narrow our individual approach to, to life and the scriptures and church is. What I mean by that is that I, when, I, when I put together my beliefs, right, I'm, they're internalized in a way that I don't recognize all the things that are causing me to think the way I think. So for instance, there's a notion, especially in, in, in I think, post-Reformation Christian thought that says, you know, that the scriptures is some kind of objective thing. And, and to some degree it is, but my reading of them is not objective. In other words, when I read the scriptures, I'm reading them from the perspective of a man, from the perspective of a man who lives in the 21st century, from the perspective of a man who lives in the 21st century, who speaks English as my first language, who's reading these particular Bibles, translated at these particular times, and I'm living in Western culture, I was raised in America, my family was certain ways, my father was a certain way, I was taught these certain things, I had these experiences, I've been in these church backgrounds, I've gone through this situation, and I have this personality, and all of that is a part of what goes into the way that I read the Bible. So while the text of the Bible, as objective as we want it to be, my approach to it is not objective. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want people to understand. And, and the conclusion of that is that if I want to do something like approach objectivity with, with the scriptures, what I need then is a much broader consensus than myself. I need, I need to be informed with historical approaches to the scriptures. I need to be informed with, with um, a, a, a living practice of people who know me and can see my 
my inabilities to see certain things and, and accommodate for them. I need to compare my life with other people who are living life with me, and we need to study the scriptures together and come away with consensus opinions. Like all of those ideas are baked into this question, and it starts by saying, "What are my biases when I, when I, when I approach the, 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 the Bible?" Yeah, yeah, I think that was well said, and, and the David Brousseau often talks about how. If you want to read the Bible right, you got to start with a blank slate. Problem is, none of us are blank slates. And how do you how do you correct that? It's first, at least, by naming where you where you are, mm-hmm. where you think you are. And I, I think that there's a lot of people who have they don't even necessarily know it. Some people do, but there's a lot of fundamentalism that's still in in, right. in, in certain communities. There's Vingalian dispositions. There's there's all kinds of yeah. The cultural ones are big. Uh, that people may not be aware of. And so having a conversation here is very useful. Got it. I don't have anything to add there. And then the last question here, one of my favorite questions, what are the boundaries of what you are comfortable with in fellowship? For example, people's belief on the age of the earth or differing views on the Apocrypha? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll start this one off, that a lot of people are bothered that here we do have different perspectives on a lot of issues that other groups would be much more narrow around. And, you know, if you think about beliefs in the age of the earth, there's people who are seven, 24-hour days. There's some people who are day-age. or some people who are framework or symbolic. I mean, there's, they're all over the map. And w- one of the first things that we see is that that existed in the early church, right? So you have people like Origen and Augustine who are were very non-literal with their approach to, to Genesis 1 in particular. And this was not a, a bone of contention. People didn't seem to say, like, you think this about Genesis 1, so you're not part of the church? And I think we have to all recognize that there's, there's just certain things that we're not necessarily called to... to to divide over, you know, like there's just certain topics that I often think of the verse in Deuteronomy where it says, the secret things belong to the to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children, that we may obey them forever. And we, we care about, in the end, faith working through love. We care about obedience and hearts that are faithful. And if you think the the origin view of Genesis 1 or the the seven twenty-four hour day. If you, you you can do you can have either of those and be a faithful Christian in either setting. Like I, I don't. It, it's never really uh, been obvious to me why that is this this lightning rod litmus test that's so often used there. And you know, I think it's a great place to have conversations. I think it's an interesting conversation about hermeneutics and et cetera that mm-hmm. we should be having. But if we're going to d- draw lines there, that's a, that's a sad thing. And I remember there was a an individual who came up here, he was from Turkey, who wanted to join a, it was an Anabaptist church, and they wouldn't let him because he was, he was of the perspective of like an older earth. And I thought, wow, you're not going to allow him into your group because of that, that one issue. You know, that, that struck me as a, mm-hmm. as a misplaced uh, line drawing event that I wish, I wish they would have had just more, more uh, latitude around where I, we have to be as cautious about where we're 
we're drawing lines is where we're not drawing lines. And that is, uh, I think some of these issues have become, we've actually fed into like this whole fundamentalist mm -hmm. debate there and caused just needless attention on things that don't even really matter that much or, or that, that we can't, we can't act on, right? Like, right. what are we going to do if, if, if Genesis 1 reads this way versus that way? How's that really going to affect right. the way that we, we live? And there's a real propensity in the history of the church to maximize these things. Uh, uh, I mean, especially like definition, like theological definitions, you know, like we see literal wars in the church right. among people calling themselves Christians over how you define a term. And, and going all the way back to, to Paul's epistle to the Romans, you know, this idea that there's, there's a place where you have to leave your brother alone right. and let him work out his own faith. And that there's, and, and so we start there in the Romans epistle, and then we see these controversies in the early church, whether it's the Quattro de Seminarians or eschatological perspectives. And then you just run that forward, and it's just controversy after controversy after controversy. And at a certain point, you just have to say, it, does this impact how you live as a part of the body of Christ on earth? And, and it's, it's not that I do believe that ideas matter. Uh, doctrine does have practical implications and the way we think about things can affect how we live our lives but everything we think doesn't affect how we live our lives and there is room for place there is a place for for some divergence within the Christian community that's healthy and it's like Finney said it's as important to define those things as to define the things where we do separate right. maybe to add just a tiny bit more to this there's a there's a really interesting book. Uh, it's a histor historical book. It's called The Jesus Wars by uh, Philip Jenkins. And it's about the controversy that came from Chalcedon. And so this whole monophysite, two natures of Christ controversy. And it, it literally turns to the point where people are killing each other over this. I mean, just killing each other, literally. And over very fine theological points that are they're important but should it get to that level of of heat definitely not Jenkins makes the good case in the in the book that that the northern so basically it was kind of the 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 European side versus the African and east eastern sides on the two sides of this and he makes the case that the particularly the, the North African community got so burned out on this that when the Islamic movement emerges a little while later, that they actually said to these Muslim people, you're going to govern us better mm. than these Europeans. And so that enables the spread of Islam in Africa. And so, you know, personally, I would, I would be of the camp that these are things that you can not divide over. You don't need to you can have friendly conversations around it and work it out. And here is where a wrongful drawing of lines literally led to led to the rise of Islam and you think about all the ramifications and now the implications on hundreds of millions of souls because of, of, of needless contention here. We have to recognize that the devil is very good at, at diverting people away from the main issue 
and wanting people to divide over these small little sub-issues and getting all the attention. I mean, think about it. What a great playbook that would be to run, mm -hmm. right, is to get people to, to hate one another and, and be suspicious of one another over comparatively small matters. So this is, um, this is a, an item of, of great consequence. And of course, the devil's in the details. Who gets to decide what small matters are and what right. important matters are? But but that's why we have these conversations. Right. Like, wh where are you at with these things? Like, what are the lines that you that are really important to you? And and if you think about it, you know, to have on on the one side things that are essential to the practice of the church, and on the other side, a space where there can be debate. I I'm. I'm kind of partial to open theism. Other people in the church aren't. Some people are, you know, some people have more old earth views. Some people don't. Like, to create a space within the church where you can have vigorous debate and conversations where at the end of that conversation, we're not all going to take our ball and go home, that we're going to, we love each other in the context of these kinds of disagreements and can push on each other and have really vigorous debate we can we can discuss it we can we can ha we can have um drawn out you know important conversations about how we feel about these things and why we think they matter and there's space to stay together that that creates a set of of skills within the community that allow us to have conversation and we don't always have it doesn't always have to be predicated on our agreement right and so what uh, what i'm hearing and a very good summary is we unite over the commandments of the New Testament. Right, right. But we're not requiring intellectual assent mm -hmm. to theological positions, which by find, and large, by and large, as, as sort of a proxy. Right. And then one question: How do you raise your children with these different beliefs? Like, is that something we should talk about? Or? It's a great question. What I say all the time is like. Uh, where I want to be, my sweet spot with my church community is that my children would grow up and be like any of my brothers and I'd be happy about it. Right. Like, if, if, if one of my children is like, hey, there's a brother over there in the church and he's, he thinks that the, the earth is whatever, however long old because of whatever, and that sounds compelling to me, and I know his life and he's faithful, and he grows up and he's like, and he's like that, I, I'm great. I'm great with that. If a, if if my child grows up, I've I've never I've never been in a church that didn't exclusively use the King James Bible, especially from the pulpit, until I came to Boston. Just happened. That's my experience where I've been in church life. If one of my if my children grow up and they read the ESV like some of our other brothers do, is that going to bother me? No, no, I don't care if they read the ESV. That's great. I'm okay with that. Right. Like those kinds of differences, we sh because so what? So the way I deal with my children is I say we present ideas. Brother Finney believes this because of that. Brother Zach believes this because of that. I believe this because of that. And I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of that that uh, question being in the air with my children any more than I right. am with it being in the air with our brotherhood. Right. Anything to add there? Yep. All right, that is a wrap for this section.